So what do we do when we come to a passage that many people in our culture would just gladly rip out of the Bible? I've been asking that question for a few years. Uh, a few years ago when I became a pastor, Paul Goebel said, Robbie, we would love, you to, love for you to teach in our premarital class called Union. And you can teach on Ephesians 5 and the biblical roles of husbands and wives. And so thanks for giving me the easy one. But I've enjoyed doing it. But it's an interesting passage. It's one of those passages that in our culture is just difficult for people to hear. So Paul talks about the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. And to many people, maybe even some of us this morning, what Paul is saying, particularly to wives, seems outdated and oppressive. Uh, what most people don't take time to realize is that what Paul says to husbands is perhaps even more radical and out of step with culture. What if I told you this passage is not ultimately about husbands and wives? It's, a, it's actually a passage about marriage that's ultimately about Christ and the church, and hence the title, Christ and the Church and Marriage. So until we realize that bigger picture, we'll probably always be confused and offended. So today and for a couple more weeks, we have a few things in focus. John Stott looks at these last sections of Ephesians, and he calls or summarizes them as harmony in the home and stability in the fight. Harmony in the home reflects the question, how do Christians live in different contexts like marriage and parenting and work? The stability in the fight re refers to how do Christians stand in the midst of spiritual warfare. So there's this really incredible balance in Ephesians where Paul is talking about how our redemption in Christ is cosmic, but because it's cosmic, it also affects our common everyday relationships. God is working out his redemption in our marriages, in our families, in our work, and all of this is happening in the midst of this cosmic spiritual battle that we can't really see without eyes of faith. So the Spirit of God is equipping us for a whole new life and a whole new fight. So today we're talking about harmony in the home, particularly as it pertains to marriage. And next week, Brent will focus on these contexts of parenting and work. And then Paul Goebel will conclude with spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Let's turn our attention to God's word. If you can follow along, uh, you've got a handout. Sorry, some of you are in the dark here. I brought PowerPoint from uh, some of the stuff I've done with the union class. Uh, some of you are in the dark, but that's not an excuse to sleep, and we're not watching Braveheart, so hang in there. Okay, this is Ephesians 5. We're going to back up to verse 20, uh, sorry, to verse 18, and then move forward to the end of the chapter. Paul says, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning, just as we consider this text, I want to try to answer four questions. And really, the first one is preliminary, and the other three flow from the text. So the first one is, why is this so hard? Like, why is this such a hard topic for us? The second one is, how does Christ love the church? The third one is, how do husbands love their wives? And then, how do wives submit to their husbands? So that's where we're going to try to go this morning, and I hope it's helpful. So if you ask the question, why is this so hard? One of the reasons it's hard is because of fear. So what are we afraid of? We're afraid of what we think the Bible says. It may not actually be what it says, but we're afraid of what we think it might say. We're also afraid of what the Bible actually says. We've heard what it actually says, and we don't like it. I think ultimately we're afraid that God's plan is worse than ours. It doesn't seem like the way we would do it, and so we're afraid that his ideas are not as wise as ours. We're also confused. And our confusion is about a lot of things in this passage that come up, like men and women and how they fit together, marriage and how that works, authority and submission. But ultimately, those things maybe take the the top billing, but ultimately, I think we're confused about God. So this passage sort of pushes all of our hot buttons from men and women to marriage, authority and submission, and ultimately God. No wonder it can be hard for us to grapple with. So we live in this culture where outrage is really a pastime. So many people just flicking through social media looking for something to feed their anger for the day. And that really means we're not listening well to one another. We get offended and we open our mouths and we shut our ears if that's possible. And you think about in a room full of people who are yelling, no one's really learning anything. So here are a quick few quick reminders for us when we feel offended by what we find in the Bible. In Isaiah 55, God says, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Sort of in that vein, Tim Keller says this, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible is offensive assumes if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. So can we learn to listen when something offends us? And maybe that's not just in scripture, but out there in public discourse. Can we listen when someone says something that offends us? Learn something. Figure out how to respond. And can we remember ultimately that the gospel itself is offensive? The cross is offensive. So it's helpful as we get started, I think, to hear from a woman. So this is actually from Tim Keller's wife, Kathy. And in The Meaning of Marriage, she sort of summarizes this issue this way. She says, The differences between men and women will become an unavoidable issue in every marriage. Everyone comes into marriage with an idea of roles, of how a husband should behave to his wife, a wife to her husband, and children to their parents. This may be the sum of impressions gathered from one's family of origin, current cultural norms, observations of friends' marriages, and even one's fictional reading or television and movie habits. There's no denying that the subject of gender roles in marriage is a contentious and controversial one. I've personally lived at the heart of the controversy myself for more than 40 years. So imagine being the wife of a PCA pastor in Manhattan. I've seen Bible verses used as weapons of both oppression and rebellion. 
I've also seen the healing and flourishing that can happen in a marriage when hot-button words like headship and submission are understood correctly with Jesus as the model for both. We hope that even if you're not comfortable with the idea of distinct, divinely ordained gender roles within marriage, that you'll suspend judgment and consider how God may have intended them for our good. So one way, um, sorry, I didn't give you that. One way we can summarize this is just because people have gotten this wrong and really wrong doesn't mean we shouldn't try to figure out how to get it right. We need the Lord's help and a, and a lot of wisdom. So here are a couple of resources. I'm just going to warn you, I can only cover so much ground this morning, but these would be really helpful places to go if you want to go deeper into this. So the meaning of marriage, Tim with his wife, Kathy Keller, it's a very helpful resource, and in particular, chapter six, called Embracing the Other, and an appendix, which has to do with decision-making, which is really helpful. And then this book by Brian Chapel with his wife, Kathy, so both have a wife named Kathy, Um, Each for the Other, which is really all about this. The whole book is about this subject. So I would commend those resources to you guys, encourage you to check them out if you haven't before. So as we continue with the idea of why is this so hard, we're confused about men and women. And so a great question to ask is, are men and women equal in value? And of course, in culture, we would say yes, but I want to argue that the Bible actually says yes as well. So if you think about Genesis 1, 27, male and female, both made in the image of God. You think about Proverbs 31, we have this vision that's around 3,000 years old of a working woman. It says things like she rises while it's still dark. She buys a field. She opens her hands to the poor. She makes clothes. Her children bless her. Her husband praises her. And that's a long time ago. She'd be running laps around some women today. Think about the end of each gospel. In a time when a woman's testimony wasn't valued, God chose to entrust the news of the resurrection to women. Nobody would make that up if they were just making up the story. In Romans 16, among all these greetings that Paul sends out, he praises and acknowledges many women as ministry colleagues. This is one of the most interesting ones. 1 Corinthians 7, the first five verses, Paul writes, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's hard to understand how radical a statement it would have been in that time, in that culture, when men could do whatever they wanted, have a mistress, divorce their wife on a whim, and Paul is saying, no, equal rights, equal obligation to serve one another and to be faithful. It's an amazing statement in that time. And in Galatians 3, 27, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, which is basically saying the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So men and women are equal in value, according to the Bible, and that's just a brief sample. But do men and women have different roles? Not universally, but in two different contexts, pointing to marriage, the Ephesians passage, also in Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3, we get this clear sense that there's a distinction in roles between men and women in marriage. And also in ordained church offices, you see Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, that those passages talk, talk about men in offices of elder and deacon that would be the husband of one wife. Sounds like a male office. And not every denomination understands it that way, but that's how our denomination interprets those passages. So that raises a question which I think everyone, it's fair to ask. Let me go back. 
lost it. How is it possible to have equal value and different roles? Isn't that the question? This is the most encouraging thing I've seen on the topic. Brian Chappell says, being equal in worth does not require our being the same in function. To conclude otherwise would require us to reason that Christ became inferior when he submitted himself to the Father, or that the Spirit deserves less glory because he submits to the purposes of the Son. Such reasoning is, of course, heretical. The persons of the Trinity are equally divine despite their distinctly different functions. By his Trinitarian nature, our God has made it abundantly clear that equal value does not require identical roles. So it sort of leaves me with a question of if it's good enough for the Trinity, is it good enough for us? And also there's this idea, there's this idea of a dance. In another book, Tim Keller talks about the life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being a dance of mutually self-giving love. So I was just at a wedding Saturday. Think of a wedding or another scenario where a couple might be dancing and often the man is leading and the woman is following and the man is initiating and the woman is responding. But when it's right, he's not yanking her around and she's not fighting him every step of the way. There's this harmony and unity and beauty. And when you see a couple dancing and it's going well, you don't say, oh, he's leading, so he's more important. Or she's following, so she's not an equal. You actually think, that's, that's beautiful. They're one, and I wish I could dance like that. See, God has designed marriage to be this dance of mutually self-giving love between two equals who are playing different roles, and the result is beauty and harmony. And it really, God's intention is it would be a captivating picture for the world to see. But I think we miss it because we're often too busy being offended. <laughs> So we're confused about men and women. We're also confused about marriage. So you think about how these issues of equality and roles play out in different kinds of marriages and just sort of thought of this chart. You think of different views of marriage and, and these are sort of summaries, stereotypes, but we'll call it a, a traditional view of marriage where there are distinction in the roles, where men seem more important, greater than women. And obviously the question becomes, well, what about the value of women? In a more contemporary view of marriage, there's no distinctions in roles. We're not going to do that. Men are equal to women. So then the question becomes, well, what about gender? Are there really no differences between male and female? And then what I'll call a biblical view of marriage, there are distinctions in roles, but men and women are equal. And then we're back to the question of, well, how can you be distinct and equal? So I'm going to walk through each of these a little bit, give you uh, a little bit, of some things to hang these on. So in a traditional view of marriage, I want to give you a poster child, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Listen to what some of the things this guy says in the movie. He says, Belle is the most beautiful girl in the village. That makes her the best. It's not right for a woman to read. Soon she starts getting ideas and thinking. So you see, he's got this shallow, superficial view of a woman's place and a woman's worth. And then he says this to Belle. He says, here, picture this, a rustic hunting lodge, my latest kill roasting on the fire, and my little wife massaging my feet while the little ones play on the floor with the dogs. It's this sense that a woman just exists to make a man's life easier. He's not really there to serve her. She's there to serve him. And then he says this, I'd like to thank you all for coming to my wedding, but first I better go in there and propose to the girl. This sense of arrogance and entitlement, especially in relationship to women. So these are the things you might hear in a traditional marriage. Things like, he calls all the shots, or... 
Grandma never disagreed with him about anything. Or he makes the money, she runs the home. When he comes home, he just kicks back and watches TV. But does that really sound like union or one flesh? Does that sound like sacrificial love? This kind of marriage, what it does is it tempts a man to go one of two directions, to dominate or to disengage, to rule with a heavy hand and control his wife, take advantage of his authority, or to just kind of disengage, abdicate, and defer. And in a similar way, the kind of marriage tempts a woman to respond by resisting, kind of going to war with her husband and the way that he relates to her, or just to kind of resign, to grin and bear it. So that's a traditional view of marriage. I think one of the problems is a lot of people think that's the biblical view of marriage, but it's not. The contemporary view, it's a reaction to how women have been treated in the traditional view, and that's probably a step in the right direction, but it creates new confusion, because in the modern family, now the confusion isn't about value, it's about gender. So does gender even matter? Is marriage really just for a man and a woman? What does it even mean to be a man or a woman? Are men and re- women and men really all that different? But what if God actually did build differences into men and women that matter? What if God made us different and it's more than just anatomy? What if it's about men or women? It's not about men or women being better, stronger, more competent. What if it's about how we fit, how we fit together, how we become one flesh? how we engage in this dance through life with harmony. So if God made us different and complementary, is it really safe to just flatten all that out? One time John Piper told a story that I want to adapt for our setting. I think it's helpful. So imagine this. A man and a woman meet here at PCPC. They sit together in church, and they seem interested in each other. So going to lunch is a possibility. So who should ask whom? Lunch costs money. So who should pay? After lunch, they're walking out, and they get approached by two thieves that threaten to take their wallets or purse and beat them up. So who should fight? It's an interesting scenario. Who should ask? Who should pay? Who should fight? Should the man initiate because all men are better leaders than women? Should the man pay because all men have more money, better jobs than women? Should the man protect her because all men are stronger and better fighters than women? You may have seen some of those female UFC fighters. I would say in all those cases, no. Women can be better than men in all three areas. But if we think the man should initiate, should provide, should protect in this kind of relationship, we have to decide, is that just cultural conditioning? Is that being old-fashioned, or is that something else? So if you push the contemporary view to its logical conclusion, there should be no distinction in the roles in a marriage or in a relationship that has marriage in view. But when I was dating Anne, I had this sense that in general, I should initiate, I'll call her, I should pay, and if something happens, I should protect her, not the other way around. So I think a godly man has this sense or inclination that the primary responsibility in this kind of relationship lies with him. That doesn't mean the sole responsibility, but the primary responsibility. And it doesn't mean that he's the better leader, provider, or protector. A godly woman also has this sense or inclination that it's a beautiful and good thing to come alongside this kind of man, to affirm him, to respond to his leadership, his provision, and his protection, and to work together with him as one, as a team. 
And again, that doesn't mean that she's incompetent to lead, provide, or protect herself. So the contemporary view flattens all that out. Anything about God making us uniquely male and female to fit together, and it really kind of flips the script. And so now, in this situation, women might be tempted to dominate or disengage. And men, feeling like they've sort of been displaced, feel tempted to resist or resign. So the contemporary view. So we get, we get to the biblical view, and we think about when things went wrong in the beginning in Genesis 3, where was Adam? He was right there with Eve, not initiating, not providing, not protecting, sort of silent in the corner. <laughs> they were equals, but God had given them different roles, and they were not playing them. So the kind of marriage we're describing today is something different from the traditional view, but it's also something different from the contemporary view The biblical view, as we might call it, sees husbands and wives as equals playing different roles. But before we get into that, just a little more confusion to clear out of the way. It's a garden picture. I didn't quite know what to do for the biblical view. (laughs) Uh, We're confused about authority. Isn't authority a bad word? If you think about recent times, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Bill Cosby, men with considerable authority... And we think about how we see all the time that men in authority have done horrible things to women. We see people using their authority not to bless people, but to harm them. And no matter where we look, it's just easy to conclude authority is bad. As sinners, we're not big fans of authority. Or we might say we're not big fans of someone else being the authority. So if our roles in marriage have something to do with authority, we're already suspicious about that. And I just say, but wait, there's more. We're also confused about submission. Isn't submission a bad word? Here we have Michael Scott. In a good work environment, even if your boss is Michael Scott, boss and employees are equals, but with different roles. Here we have Arnold from Kindergarten Cop. You think about in a good classroom, teachers and students are equals, but they have different roles. This is close to the heart. Coach K and Kobe with the Olympic team, in a good team environment, coaches and players are equals but have different roles. So when there's no authority and no submission, things fall apart. You just look at our society and the way things are falling apart. In one sense, you could explain all our problems in the world by our failure to respect authority and submit. And so we're all like peasants in Monty Python. I don't know if you remember this this scene, but King Arthur walks up and we say, who does he think he is? And he says, I'm your king. And he says, well, I didn't vote for you. He says, you don't vote for kings. He says, then I could become king then. And so we're all a bunch of wannabe kings, and that's why the world's a mess. We we reject the authority of the true king. We try to take it for ourselves instead of embracing God's authority, submitting to it, trying to understand the wisdom of his ways. So which path are you on? submitting to authority, or really stealing it for yourself. So after we talk about why this is so hard, it's really helpful to talk about how does Christ love the church? Because we bring all our confusion to Ephesians, and what happens is we miss the big picture. We're thinking about men and women and marriage and authority and submission, and you know what Paul is thinking about? Jesus Christ. Even more than husbands and wives, Paul is focused on how Christ loves the church. It's actually the main passage in the New Testament that specifically says Christ loves the church. And Paul wants us to understand everything he's saying to husbands and wives in that light. 
So Paul talks to wives and then he talks to husbands, but in verses 31 and 32, he pulls back the curtain and he quotes Genesis 2 and he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. We think, Paul, you're talking about marriage, right? And then he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Like, why didn't you tell me that at the beginning? So Sinclair Ferguson writes, God has built into the order of creation a relationship which provides a clue to the ultimate relationship. The experience of being a couple in a marriage relationship points to the ultimate couple, Christ and his bride, the church. This marriage made in heaven but forged on earth is destined to last for all eternity and every Christian marriage is called to reflect and manifest it. Glorious mystery indeed. And here's what's beautiful about that. If you are in Christ, you don't have to be married to experience the ultimate. If you are in Christ, you are part of his body, the church, and he loves you like this passage describes. So if you're single, you may long for the picture and the metaphor, but in Christ, you already have the reality. So I wanna talk about that reality because this is the interpretive key that really unlocks this passage. It's the love Christ has for his church. And it's once we see that, that we have this amazing window into how he loves us. So look with me through that window. He loves us. He is the head. He leads us. He is himself our savior. Those things are in verse 23. In verse 25, he loved us. You remember Ephesians 1, 4, and 5? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Also in verse 25, he gave himself up for us which I think pictures the cross. And you think of Ephesians 2.13, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. In verse 26, we're reminded that he loves us, he cleansed us. And we think of the, the washing with water, like the waters of baptism. We think of uh, our forgiveness and the washing away of our sins. And he did this to sanctify us, also in verse 26. That that was the purpose, to make us more like him. And we've talked about putting away the old self and putting on the new self to be renewed in the image of Christ. He did all this that we might become like him. And in verse 27, more of an ultimate purpose that he did this to present us to him as a beautiful spotless bride. And in verse 30, we get this sense that we are one with him. He loved us so much that he made us one with him, members of his own body. So Jesus has this vision for loving his people that stretches from beginning to end, from predestination all the way to glory. When you start to process this, you realize this, is, this has got to completely reframe, reframe the way I think about this passage. So we think about authority as a bad word. What does Jesus have to do with authority? He says, for even the Son of Man, the one with the most authority, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does Jesus do with his authority? John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the ultimate picture of using authority to love and serve others. He used his authority to bless us. We think submission is a bad word, but what does Jesus have to do with submission? Every day of his life on earth, Jesus yielded to his father's will. He submitted, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he arranged his life under the Father's loving authority. That's what submission is, to arrange our life under someone else's authority. And so he submitted, he humbled himself, 
He was obedient to the point of death, as Philippians 2 says, even death on a cross. And so Jesus is the ultimate example of sacrificial love, but also voluntary submission. So he redeems our understanding of authority and submission because he's a king who laid down his life, but he's also a savior who submitted. And this changes everything for this discussion. And you just have to wonder, has Jesus changed the way we think about authority and submission? If you look up to Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, be filled with the spirit. And that is connected to everything that comes after it. So what we're saying about marriage presupposes that we're filled with the spirit of the one who sacrificed and submitted for us because there's no way to live like this without his life in us. So how do husbands love their wives? It's the kind of man that Paul is describing here is a little different from the men we see sometimes in culture, kind of like the tough guy who can't really control himself and just wants to conquer women and abuse his power or like the doofus dad who's funny and likable, but really, you know, kind of passive and incompetent. You contrast these men with the love that Christ had for his church, and there's really no comparison. So Paul gives us a really clear command. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. It's Christ's sacrificial love for the church that's the pattern and power for the husband. It doesn't mean the husband is Jesus, that he somehow saves his wife. It means that the husband is a conduit of the love of Christ for his wife. So a wife should know the love of Christ more because of the way her husband loves her. Interesting, Paul doesn't say lead her in those words. He doesn't say boss her around. He doesn't say force her to submit. Paul says love her as Christ loved the church. So men, if you're married, is that the message that she's getting from you? For us, it starts with submitting to God. It's important to realize that. Everyone in marriage submits. We all submit to God. We bow before Jesus. We trust him. We receive his love. We're filled with his spirit. And as we walk with him, he lives his life through us, whether we're married or not. In marriage, it looks like this. And this is just one way I've thought about it, try to summarize some of the things in the passage. Following Christ, who sacrificed, relying on his grace, the husband is called to love God. Submit to God first and love her sacrificially. Our love should reflect the selfless and costly love of Jesus who died for his church. We should use our authority to bless her. Our love should really reflect the leadership of Jesus who disadvantaged himself to bless his church. So any authority that God's given us is for the purpose of blessing those we're called to love, not taking advantage of them. We're called to take responsibility for her, not take command of her. So our love should reflect the gentleness of Jesus who doesn't actually boss his people around, even though he could. The husband lead and serve and initiate. So our love should reflect the initiative of Jesus who doesn't ask us to do things that he's not willing to do. He's already walked our road, felt our pain, gone to the cross, everything. He's gone before us. He initiates. And men, the women in our lives are better than us in so many ways. And so it doesn't mean that we know more and that we're better than them. Actually leading and serving and initiating can mean opening up the conversation saying, I really need your help in this area. I need to delegate this thing to you because I'm not good at it. How can I encourage you? Because you're a team, but you're willing to lead and serve and initiate. 
and that we want to nourish and cherish our wives. Nourish them, not neglect them. Cherish them, not check out on them. So our love should reflect the instinct of Jesus, like Paul talks about, that we, we care for our bodies because we're interested in how we're doing ourselves. So we are one with Jesus, and so he cares for us as like his own body. And if we're married, we're one flesh with our wife, and so it should be natural for us to nourish and cherish someone who's part of us. And ultimately, a husband should want to lead his wife to Jesus, not lead her astray. So our love should reflect the purposes of Jesus in redemption and beauty and transformation. Helping our wife grow in Christ should be one of our greatest joys and priorities. If you're married, is that at the top of your list? So Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. We don't always like that language, but it's not the forceful, oppressive leadership that everyone fears. It's loving, servant leadership of Christ. And the motto would be, my life for yours. Jesus died that we might live, and husbands are called to die daily for their wives. So men, God is asking us to represent Jesus to our wives. If that doesn't overwhelm us, I don't know what to say. We need to feel the weight of that so we feel how much we need him. And we also need to feel the beauty of that so we know the joy of pointing our wives to Christ. So if you're married and you want to know what this passage means for you, turn off all the traditional and cultural noise and just ask yourself, Lord Jesus, how have you loved me? Now, how do I share that love with her? And if there's an aspect of your marriage that doesn't seem to reflect the love of Christ, something's probably off, and that's worth looking at. If you're not married and you want to know what this passage means for you, ask yourself, Lord Jesus, how have you loved me? And now how do you want me to love others? If we're kicking against this life of love, just realize what that might mean. It might mean we don't really want to submit to God. It might mean we don't really want to follow Jesus in the way of sacrificial love. It might mean we're missing the joy and purpose of being the man God has called us to be. But if we've submitted to God and we're filled with the Spirit, this is where he wants to take us. Let's say a little bit about how wives submit to their husbands. Because of time, I won't say as much, but if you realize in the passage, being filled with the Spirit is actually what, where everything starts. Being filled with the Spirit leads to a life of, in verse 521, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So before anything else, we submit to the Lord and we submit to his people. We arrange our lives under the Lord's loving authority and we live that out in community. It's only after that that Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So note that Paul addresses wives directly. This is actually very different from Islam, which doesn't speak to women. Islam tells men they're superior to women and to punish them if they refuse to submit. This is not that. So following Christ, who's voluntarily submitted, relying on his grace, the wife is called to arrange her life under his, her husband's loving authority after submitting to God. Use her gifts to serve and empower her husband. You know, that's different from the thought that I'm inferior and I don't have anything to offer. No, Jesus gave her gifts and intends for her to use them to bless her husband and others. And following her husband doesn't mean pretending that she doesn't bring anything to the table. If you know Anne, she can do like a dozen things really well. She is such a blessing. 
It means helping complete and complement her husband. In the Bible, the Lord actually calls himself our helper. It's not just Eve who is called a strong helper. This is not a weak word. Ever since Adam, we have needed a lot of help. God's design that we would work together, that our wives would help complete and complement us. That a wife is warm and willing and respectful in the way that she relates to her husband, not cold and calculating and resentful. And that just flows from how Jesus submitted to the Father. He didn't do it cold and calculatingly and resentful. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. And like the church responding to Jesus, a wife should lovingly respond to her husband. That's harmony. Follow him towards Jesus. Don't follow him somewhere else. Sorry, clicker went crazy. But our wives should help us chart the course and stay on the road. We're following Jesus and they're helping us chart the course. Paul says wives should submit in everything, which means it's comprehensive, but I would add unless a husband is asking his wife to disobey or dishonor the Lord. Because Jesus would never ask us to participate in evil. There's a little caveat here because elsewhere Paul says that if a wife is married to an unbeliever, she has a great opportunity. And that is that a woman could actually win her husband to Christ by the way she honors him, even when he doesn't know or honor the Lord. So that's perhaps worth noting. Though I wouldn't hope that people would find themselves in that situation very often. So God's vision for the Christian wife is not a restrictive or a passive thing. It's actually a strong, sacrificial, spirit-empowered, God-glorifying thing. It's a reflection of how Jesus has voluntarily submitted. It's the path to becoming all that she was meant to be in Christ. It's the path to oneness with her husband, and it's the path to showing the world in this little mini-drama a picture of Christ and the church. So as we finish this morning, I know that we haven't answered every question. There are lots of things I left out for the sake of time, but let me just say a few things to wrap up. When it comes to marriage, the Bible's long on vision and short on details. I actually think this is great. Winston Smith says this, there's no simple one-size-fits-all to-do list for husbands and wives. Husbands aren't commanded to take out the trash. Wives aren't commanded to change the baby. Instead of giving you set duties, God in the Bible does something much better. He gives a few basic principles to help you and your spouse define your roles in a godly way, no matter what your life looks like. I think that's incredibly wise for God to give us a framework and then give us his spirit to figure out the details in different times and cultures and circumstances. We need to ask ourselves, is my vision of marriage coming from the Bible or from somewhere else? The second, remember that husbands and wives are both called to submit to God and to sacrifice for one another. So Kathy Keller says, both men and women get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. By accepting our general roles and operating within them, we're able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they're lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. And so Christian marriage becomes like evangelism. I don't understand that. Could you tell me more about that? And so this is a sign that one author got for his wedding and thought he would throw away, and then it became the only wedding gift that he kept. Home, where each lives for the other and all live for God. It's a good summary. We each are sacrificing for one another, and we're all living for the Lord here. And lastly, if we're overwhelmed by what this passage asks of us, I just want you to remember this. 
No one is more committed to the glory of God in our lives than Jesus Christ. So he gave his life for us. He gave his spirit to us. We need his power in relationships, and in Christ, we have his power. We need his love in relationships, and in him, nothing can separate us from his love. And he wants that love to be evident in our relationships, single or married. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for difficult places in Scripture that ask us to really trust you and to be taught by you. We pray that this morning you would teach us. Lord, as we come around these questions and this passage, Lord, we pray that you would open eyes, show us by your grace what to do with what's in your word. Give us grace to apply it. And Lord, remind us again how much you love us. Thank you for giving us brothers to walk with this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.